I remember reading a book about um, the life of a GP in the late 1800s and almost everything that he was seeing in a typical day's work, we've now cured and yet we're busier than ever. We absolutely need to address things like the, the standard of diet in the country, particularly the ultra high processed foods. If you start to do that, you're tackling the problem in a fundamentally different way. Every major organization who's looked at healthcare says you get more bangs for your buck from investing in primary care than you do investing in secondary care. But in fact, in this country in particular, we've done the opposite. This is the National Health Executive Podcast, bringing you views, insight and conversation from leaders across the health sector. Presented by Louis Morris. My guest today is writer, doctor and former chair of NICE, Sir David Haslam. It was the NHS's 75th anniversary in the summer. And obviously you did the NHS symposium. Before we get on to that, I would like to just ask you, how would you assess the NHS's state at the moment, looking back? The 75th anniversary of the NHS, obviously it's been an opportunity to, to look back and to look forward. And uh, without a doubt, we're in a time of crisis. One of the problems is that for at least 30 years, people have described the NHS has been in crisis and one of the worries about that is it begins to feel like um, you're crying wolf, but it really feels that this time is different. The pressures on every part of the system uh, across the board just feel to me to be more challenging than they've ever been. That doesn't mean that there isn't a possible way through this, but it does mean that we really do have to start thinking very differently. You actually offered a piece for our online magazine, which was out at the time of recording today or yesterday, I believe. And in that piece, you mentioned that the NHS needs rebalancing. What did you mean by that? What do you mean by rebalancing? A year ago, I, I wrote a book uh, on the state of the health service called Side Effects, How Our Healthcare Lost Its Way and, and How We Fix It. And this sort of triggered quite a lot of interest from a number of organisations, particularly uh, a colleague of mine, David Pendleton, at the Henley Business School. And he brought together a group of people to discuss how we could look at some of the challenges that I'd identified. And one of the main challenges I think I'd identified is I wasn't clear what the health service was really trying to achieve. Uh, lack of clarity about what we're trying to achieve, over-medicalization of many aspects of normal life, um, a dreadful under-recognition of prevention. Um, and I spent most of my career as a GP. And I remember reading a, a book about um, the life of a GP in the late 1800s, and almost everything that he was seeing in a typical day's work, we've now cured, and yet we're busier than ever. And it struck me that if that was true about conditions in the 1800s, and we've managed to cure everything that's presenting to doctors now, will we have nothing to do? Don't you believe it? There's the, the, you know, the future becomes ever more complicated, ever more challenging. And by rebalancing, um, it became really clear to us that uh, as a group at the Henley Business School, it became really clear that you can't just pour more money in to the status quo as we are at the moment. Always, inevitably, the waiting times in hospitals, the, the acute waits in uh, emergency rooms become the political focus and become the focus of publicity. But if we don't simultaneously address primary care and social care, we're in real future trouble. And we, we came up with this vision. If you think of, of the health system like a book bookshelf, and you've got the, you know, the big hospitals that are big books on the shelf, but if your bookends 
aren't working effectively, then everything tumbles down. And the book ends at one end of primary care, the other end of social care. If, if both of those aren't supported, then the whole system is going to fall apart like a, a pile of books without a bookend. Is that the only realistic future we have for the NHS? Oh, absolutely not. Now, there's, there's so much we can do. From a point of view of prevention, for instance, at the moment, the newspapers are full of enthusiastic stories about the use of some of the new drugs for treating obesity. Um, at a, you know, at the moment, price being quoted is around about £1,000 a month, when we absolutely need to address things like the, the standard of diet in the country, particularly the ultra high processed foods, these these sort of issues. Now, if you start to do that, you're tackling the problem in a fundamentally different way. If we wait all the time, all the time for problems to become medical problems and then treat them with pharmaceuticals, then it's no wonder we run into major difficulties in terms of funding, in terms of access and so on. So I'm not naive enough to think that we can prevent everything, but we do go about things in this very curious way, waiting for problems to develop and then treating them rather than looking uh, further upstream. I guess it's treating things in the community before they become a problem in the hospital. There's two issues to it. There's international evidence and support from all the major players, the World Health Organization, the World Bank. Uh, every major organisation who's looked at healthcare says you get more bangs for your buck from investing in primary care than you do investing in secondary care. But in fact, in this country in particular, we've done the opposite when it comes not just to an investment in uh, in money, but in terms of workforce. That you know the number of hospital doctors has increased dramatically. The number of general practitioners has fallen, as we all know. There was some fascinating research, for instance, from Norway that has shown that the importance of continuity of care of, of a patient and their doctor knowing each other. And so the, this study showed that if patients stayed registered with the same GP over many years, they had fewer hospital admissions, uh, reduced risk of early death, uh, fewer out of hours appointments. Um, these are sort of all achievements that if it was a drug that we were prescribing, we would be desperate to provide the drug for the population. But we've somehow allowed quality primary care just to wither away so people see you know, whoever they can see rather than a doctor who knows them. And then we're reaping, reaping the whirlwind of this. It's a classic example that we've poured all the money into dealing with where the problems are now rather than trying to ensure that those problems don't develop in future. So supporting primary care, uh, you know, if you can develop good re interpersonal relationships in a good practice, high quality clinicians looking after uh, patients who, who know their doctors and the doctors know them, you reduce hospital admissions, uh, you reduce costs, you reduce emergency usage. Why wouldn't we want to do that? And yet all the money goes in the opposite direction. Yeah, money is the age-old issue in the NHS. One of the problems is in every country in the world, and I spent some six years as, as chair of NICE and was uh, privileged to be invited to speak to healthcare systems and ministers around the world, and they were all facing the same problem of ever-increasing cost, ever-increasing uh, proportion of GDP being swallowed up by uh, spending on health. Now, I, I, no one can pretend that that's going to go on uh, permanently, uh, it becomes impossible. I think John Appleby once did a study that showed that, you know, if you keep on extrapolating forward, you reach 100% of GDP. That is not sustainable. 
um, which is why we talked about rebalancing, about the importance of, yes, to, to get out of this crisis, the health and social care system is going to need uh, a large influx of money, but a, a significant amount of that needs to go into primary care and social care to try and, with primary care, to help deal with all the work that is now ending up in hospital that needn't, if it's able to be addressed effectively in primary care, social care at the other end of the system to allow people to be discharged from hospital. But just pouring it into the hospital isn't the only solution. It needs both. And, and sadly, most investment in healthcare in the last decade uh, has tended to focus on hospital because that's where the noise is. Whilst we're mentioning the financial piece, I think it's originally analysis from the Health Foundation. Don't quote me on that, please. But I think it's £40 billion shortfall in health spending the UK has compared to some of its European contemporaries. Now, that's a lot, a lot of money. Why do you, why do you think that is? Why do you think we spend so much little compared to some other countries? Uh, this was a, a, a deliberate decision based around austerity. You have to look at, um, and this isn't a political point, though it, I know it feels like it. If you look at the investment that happened in the health service uh, when the Blair government uh, came to power and when Tony Blair made his commitment to match spending on healthcare to that of uh, the rest of Europe uh, as a proportion of GDP, pretty well everything, every measurable metric improved. Uh, patient satisfaction improved, waiting times fell, uh, emergency uh, department waiting times fell. Um, when you get to 2010 uh, and austerity kicks in, well, the calculation has been that uh, around about between 2010 and 2019, around about 40 billion less has been invested in care, in health and, and care compared to the, our European neighbours. And that is an extraordinary amount. And people, uh, we frequently hear politicians and others saying we need a different system, maybe an insurance system or whatever. But the simple fact is you get what you pay for. And if we haven't been paying for it, you don't get it. Absolutely. You mentioned in the piece that 40 billion if you used it over a four to five year period to reboot the NHS, as you've described. But you also mentioned that it would require strong leadership. Now, this might be self-evident in what you were saying. There. It might be a throwaway term. But what do you mean by strong leadership? It's absolutely clear that we need to, to engage the public with the, the fact that if, if you have a service that has almost infinite potential expense, almost infinite demand because the boundaries of what we can do in healthcare are sh constantly shifting. You have to make tough decisions and that we have to make decisions about what can be provided, what can be expected, and also about uh, issues around personal responsibility for health. I totally understand all the arguments uh, about deprivation and the social determinants of health and so on. Um, but we, we, I mean, my, my whole book, Side Effects, was focused around how we can look at uh, rebalancing, re-looking re at how we deliver healthcare. I make an analogy with when doctors are treating anemia, the health service at the moment is anemic when it comes to, to money. It's not just a question in, when you're treating a patient with anemia of giving iron tablets. You have to find out why the system is anemic uh, and then address that that accordingly. And so within the NHS, we do have a, a great deal of, of um, uh, over-medicalisation and over-treatment, which we could address. We do have an awful problem with a lack of prevention being taken care of. And then, and then at the social care end, we've ignored social care and wonder why patients back up in hospital 
taking up inappropriately expensive facilities for the lack of investment in another part of the system. It, I suspect in 20 years we'll look back on the current era and to say, what on earth did they think they were doing? Uh, it makes so little sense, but we could do this. And it takes strong leadership by the pub, by politicians and by leaders to recognise that the only way out of this is to work together to rebalance the system in the way that we've described. You mentioned government there, and I want to make this clear. This isn't necessarily my opinion, but it's been argued that the governments have, have perhaps focused on short-term policies. Maybe you're coming up to an election, you want to show your help in the NHS, rather than long-term solutions. One, would you agree with that? And why, if so, do you think that? I decided about 20 years ago when I started to get into leadership roles in the health service, it struck me that an awful lot of health policy is driven with an aim of keeping bad stories out of the newspapers, out of the media. Um, so uh, if, if it looks like a crisis is coming, money will go to that area. Every general election I can I can remember, there's been some issue that's come up around health, and suddenly that's been an area that has received funding or received focus. Rather than stepping back uh, and looking at how we can address the system as a whole, um, so I, I, I and again I've seen this in in almost every country I've looked at. I I gave a presentation to the World Health Health Assembly in Geneva about this and just asked healthcare leaders, you know, were they sure what they were trying to achieve? And if they were sure what they were trying to achieve, why did the spending that they 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 spent not seem to match that? Uh, as an example, again, international evidence shows that if you want to reduce health, in, health inequalities and overall improve health outcomes, then the best investment is in primary care. And almost everywhere in the world, investment in primary care goes down rather than up. Now, explain that to me. And I think it's because the stories in secondary care are more dramatic uh, and nothing about this, by the way, nothing about this is knocking the importance of hospitals. I'm just trying to get the balance between the bits right. I've personally, over the last five years, suffered from cancer. I'm really grateful that a good hospital service is there and was there to care for me. But if you constantly put all your money where the noise is, where the stories are, where the, the headlines are, you miss out on the whole aspect of prevention where there's no story, there's no glamour, there's nothing interesting about prevention. If you stop someone having a heart attack by controlling their blood pressure, their smoking, their weight, their lipids, even the person who doesn't have the heart attack doesn't know they didn't have a heart attack. I mean, it sounds a ridiculous thing to say, but it's far, any one of us would prefer not to be ill than to be treated well when we are ill. And yet we put all our, all our money, all our effort into the uh, the treatment side. If a restructuring like you're describing doesn't happen soon, not to go all doom and gloom, but I think today it was breaking news that the NHS waiting lists have topped 7.6 million, 7.7 million maybe. You know, it keeps going up and up and up. What do you think could happen if we don't see proactive action very soon? Well, again, without wishing to be political in this, we, we desperately, in the acute time, you're talking about today, the news about waiting times. I heard the Prime Minister on the news at lunchtime uh, saying that the reason that waiting times were going up was fundamentally down to the to industrial action by doctors. Now, it really worries me that they're not getting on and negotiating. Um, it feels to me that uh, the industrial action is being used as an excuse, as an explanation for waiting times 
so that politicians can hide behind that. But as far as I can see, most of the evidence is that the waiting problems were there well before the industrial action. If you're an employer and your workforce is deeply unhappy, and as we've seen in the media this week, a third of junior doctors and medical students are talking about the, the likelihood of their emigrating. Uh, and we're looking at a world market in you know, the availability of jobs for, for clinicians. And the, the working conditions of most doctors in the health service being a long way short of what they would hope they would be and the whole issue around retention. We cannot go on like that. And so it's critical to me that ministers and the BMA get round a table, get started on negotiations, drop these quite extraordinarily insistence that there can be no discussion because without discussion, we're not going to solve this. After the government rolled out the £200 million winter resilience package, a few health chiefs made the point that the investment will only go towards absorbing some of the costs of the strikes, a figure which some estimate to be around £1 billion. I guess the point is that it will be cheaper to just get around the negotiating table. Well, it, it just seems to me if you're an employer and the government effectively through NHS England, I mean, I know NHS England is is technically uh, in, independent, um, I choose my words carefully there. But if your workforce is as unhappy as they are, then you do have to talk to them. Within the working group that we set up at the Henley Business School, we had senior people from the world of business, not from the world of medicine, who could not believe the government's attitude uh, to, uh, to refusing to negotiate. You have to negotiate. You have to get your, uh, your staff back on side, feeling valued, and this is just getting us nowhere. And and running into, I mean, you know, winter planning. I know we're talking about winter planning. It's September. If we should be talking about winter planning for 24, 25, rather than 24, 23, 24, you know, you have to plan a long way ahead. And uh, it's 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 vital. It's absolutely vital that uh, progress is made on on getting back around the table and getting this sorted. Well, that's what I think. I think it was Matthew Taylor, chief executive of the NHS Confederation. He made that point that it's already too late for this winter. It's obviously welcome, 200 million, thank you. It's a bit late to be planning for winter right now, especially the industrial action. And this next question, I don't want to put words in your mouth or maybe, you know, put an answer it either, but is there something to be said about the difference in junior doctors' strikes negotiations between Scotland and England, maybe? Um, it's very interesting that in Scotland they've reached... Uh, a settlement. And I simply do not understand why the government in England cannot start discussing negotiation. They seem to have uh, taken the line that the starting point for the juniors was 35%. We refuse to accept that. Uh, and therefore we won't talk. Well, that's not that's no way of negotiating. The, the BMA juniors have made it absolutely clear that they are open to discussion. And um, it could be achieved in Scotland. I cannot for the life of me think why it can't be achieved elsewhere. And just before we do wrap up, we are coming towards the end, unfortunately. But I just wanted to give you a chance again, back to the rebalancing NHS. Three core points that health leaders, the government, whoever, need to achieve, need to action. What would you say they are? Uh, key points are we absolutely have to focus on our workforce which fundamentally involves not just the workforce plan and recruitment, but more than anything, retention, which means uh, that the whole quality of life, which isn't just pay, the whole quality of the experience of, of working in the NHS, we have to address that. We have to rebalance the amount of support and funding that goes into primary care and social care, as well as the hospital sector, even though the noise and the heat is in the hospital sector. 
And we do have to uh, take on board the potential developments that tech is going to bring us to free up clinicians to spend more time doing the things that, that they can do rather than focus an awful lot of clinician time at the moment is spent on administrative tasks that the sensible use of tech, if only we could get that working in the NHS, could make a real difference to the future. David, thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to the National Health Executive Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe to make sure you receive every new edition.